How many realize that we are here by His mercy? Purely by His mercy. God, you have merciful to me. We're going to continue in our study of 1 Peter chapter 4, a tremendous passage, verses 7 through 11. We began this study last week, and I want to, before we turn to 1 Peter, I want you to turn to the, the Gospel of Luke, and uh, chapter 14, if you would. Verse 26. Jesus says, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, his wife and children, his brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. And anyone who does not carry his cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. Suppose one of you wants to build a tower. Will he not first sit down and Estimate the cost to see if he has enough money to complete it. For if he lays the foundation and is not able to finish it, everyone who sees it will ridicule him, saying, This fellow began to build and was not able to finish. Or suppose a king is about to go to war against another king. Will he not first sit down and consider whether he is able with 10,000 men to oppose the one coming against him with 20,000? If he is not able, he will send a delegation while the other is still a long way off and will ask for terms of peace. In the same way, any of you who does not give up everything he has cannot be my disciple. No one, no one should become a follower of Jesus Christ without counting the cost. That's what he's saying to us. No one should become a follower of Jesus Christ without counting the cost. And the implication from this passage, obviously, is that the cost is very high. The cost is very high. Being an authentic Christian demands a willingness to pay that high price. If I'm going to be an authentic Christian, then I must be willing to pay the high price price that Jesus demands. Beloved, when we talk about being a disciple of Jesus Christ, a follower of Jesus Christ, it is with that in mind. You cannot think of yourself as a disciple of Jesus Christ without understanding you must give up everything for him. It's a high cost. We need to encourage one another to be willing. We need to encourage others who, as we share with them about Christ and becoming a Christian, we need to encourage them to count the cost, to consider what it is that Jesus asks of us. You cannot be his disciple unless you're willing to do these things. It is costly to follow Jesus Christ. It is costly. You remember the parables that Jesus taught in Matthew chapter 13? The parable of the treasure in the field, the parable of the valuable pearl, the pearl of great price or great value. Jesus says that the man sold all that he had in order to purchase that field in which that treasure was buried. He sold all that he had in order to purchase that one pearl of great value. Is being a disciple of Jesus of the greatest value so that everything else pales in comparison? You remember Jesus' interview with the rich young man in Matthew chapter 19. And he says to that young man, Sell everything you have, give it to the poor, then follow me. Is Jesus being unreasonable? No, he's pointing out the cost of following him. He demands what? Total, full commitment. It's a high cost. Jesus told some would-be disciples, 
recorded in Luke's Gospel and Matthew's Gospel, that he expected them to drop everything and to immediately follow him at the cost of whatever other enterprises they may have involved themselves. And they were reluctant, and they said they had to take care of family affairs, and they had to take care of business affairs. Those things took priority over following him. And when Jesus spoke to those and called those who would become his disciples, he simply said to them, follow me. It was an imperative. It was a command. Follow me. He says to them, in effect, give up your way of life. Give up the boats. Give up the nets. Follow me. Give up the matters of your life in exchange for following me. Give up your dreams. Give up your wishes. Give up your wants. Give up your goals. Follow me. Because I'm going to refashion those goals. I'm going to refashion those dreams. I'm going to refashion those wants. Follow me. He demands, he demands, if you're going to be an uh, an authentic disciple of his, he demands a very, very high cost. So, beloved, it is costly to follow Christ. You cannot be an authentic Christian and follow him at your leisure in your own comfort. It is costly to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. Philosopher Soren Kierkegaard said it this way, It costs a man even more to go to hell. Let's put it in perspective. It costs a man even more to go to hell. Proverbs chapter 13, verse 15. The way of the unfaithful is hard. Many of us, at some point in life, have discovered that. It's been hard. It's been hard. Things haven't worked out. Things haven't gone smoothly. The way of the unfaithful is hard. But the way of the disciple, though it may be costly, the way of the disciple is not hard. You say it's not? No. Listen to what Jesus, listen to how Jesus describes his way, the way of a disciple. He says, my yoke is what? Easy. And my burden is light. If that has not been your experience as a Christian, if you cannot say... His yoke is easy. His burden is light. If that has not been your experience as a Christian, you need to take a couple steps back and evaluate whether or not you are a serious disciple of Jesus. Jesus said it. His yoke is easy. His burden is light. The real price is paid by those who will not pay the price of discipleship. The hardness belongs to the way of the unfaithful. All of Scripture and all of human experience testify to the truth and to the reality of that fact. To reject becoming a disciple of Jesus Christ, to reject that, beloved, is to choose the hardest way. Who in the world would want to choose the hardest way? But to reject Christ and to reject following Him, being a disciple of Jesus Christ, is in fact to choose the hardest way. It is to choose a life of crushing guilt. It is simply to choose a life of crushing guilt. Guilt crushes people. But if you choose to follow Christ... That guilt is relieved. That guilt is removed. There is no condemnation. My sins are forgiven. I have been cleansed by the blood of Jesus. He died in my place. Who in the world would not want to make that swap? You're an absolute fool to not want to be a disciple of Jesus Christ when you understand what's at stake. To choose... And to reject to to be a disciple of Jesus Christ is to choose a way of life that is full of unanswerable questions. People in this world have questions, 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 and they don't have answers. And there are all sorts of answers being put forth, but they are not substantial enough to bring peace and joy into their life. 
To choose to reject Jesus Christ is to choose a life of unanswerable questions. Beloved, we have questions, but God has answered all of our questions. And he's given us solid, substantial answers that speak to the very core of our being, that satisfy us and bring us a sense of peace and joy. These are real answers. To reject being a disciple of Jesus Christ is to choose a life of hopeless disappointments. Hopeless disappointments. Life is full of disappointments. But to have no hope in the midst of those disappointments is one of the most tragic experiences you could ever have. Beloved, you and I as Christians, true disciples of Jesus Christ, we have disappointments, but we are not without hope. We are not without hope. To reject being a disciple of Jesus Christ is to choose a life of endless and unsolvable problems. Endless and unsolvable problems. You choose a life of that when you reject Jesus Christ. Christians are not without problems, but our problems aren't endless, and they are solvable. God promises to solve them for us. He gives us solutions. He gives us answers. He graces our lives. And lastly, to reject being a disciple of Jesus Christ is to choose to spend forever in hell. After all of the other stuff, if it weren't bad enough to choose to spend eternity in hell, beloved, we should conclude and be reminded regularly that though the cost of discipleship to follow Jesus Christ is high, though it demands a willingness to give up all that we are to follow Christ, it is small when compared to the high cost of refusing to become a follower of Jesus Christ. Would you not agree with me? Now, am I saying that you should throw everything about and become a, a roving evangelist or a pastor? Or No, it just says that you set aside your vision of your life and you be faithful with God's entrusted to you. Do everything as unto him. Not distracted. And we're going to expand on this and we're going to unfold this idea as we go. We are called to follow Christ very simply. We are called into following him to be his disciples and as such, as disciples, to obey his commands and listen what the Bible says about his commands. 1 John chapter 5, verse 3, and his commands are not, what, burdensome. It's not a burdensome thing to follow Jesus. It's not a burdensome thing to trust in him. It's not a burdensome thing. To be a disciple of Jesus Christ. Beloved, we are given clear instruction in the Bible. We are given clear instruction. You can't get any clearer instruction than in this book. Do you know that? You can't get any clearer instruction in this book. And we are also given the direct and enabling power of the Holy Spirit in our life to fulfill all those commands. The Bible puts it this way. I can do everything that God commands and calls me to do. I can do it all because he gives me the strength. How does he give me that strength? By his indwelling spirit who empowers me as I trust him and as I surrender my life and as I submit to being a disciple, as I walk by faith, moment by moment, I begin to know and experience the reality of that power that enables me to face life and the problems and difficulties and crises that I must engage and be faithful in the process. He gives me power. I can't do this in my own strength. I can't live this Christian life. This Christian life's impossible. It's impossible. But God enables me. This is not wishful thinking. This is not some hopeful, mythological kind of mystical mm, thing. This is the living God his spirit living in me, enabling me, empowering me to do what he's called me to do and to be what he's called me to be. Beloved, and if we are willing to obey in the power of the spirit, 
we will find, we will find that the yoke is easy and the burden is light. If we are willing to do it, if we're willing to obey, we'll find it. No more fighting, no more kicking against the goads, no more resisting, no more going, oh man, oh man, it's going to be so hard. No, you surrender, you go for it knowing by faith that he's in you and he's going to carry you through it and he's going to sustain you even in the midst of the deepest, darkest difficulty. That's what he tells us. That's what he tells us. Would you, would you agree with me that we, we live in a complex world? How many would agree? We live in a complex world? Sure we do. The problem with that for us, from a Christian perspective, is that contemporary Christianity seems bent on assuming that because the world is complex, the solutions to the problems of Christians are also complex. Not so. Not so. The solutions to our lives, the solutions to the problems we face and deal with, are not complex. The yoke is easy. The burden is light. The yoke is easy. The burden. Turn to your neighbor. Tell him the yoke is easy. The burden is light. Remind him of that fact. The foundations of the Christian life, the foundations of the Christian life are not complex. It's not complex. It's a simple life. The foundations are simple. They're direct. You don't have to be a rocket scientist to live the Christian life. You can be an average everyday person. I'm living proof of that. I'm an average, everyday person. I'm living the Christian life. I'm trusting God. I understand what, what it means to, to know His power in my life, to enable me to live this life and to do the things I do. Life is complex. The world is complex. Your Christian experience doesn't have to be complex. I believe with all my heart that when we get to heaven, God's going to say to some of us, I never meant for it to be that difficult. I never meant for it to be that complicated. You made it complicated. You, 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 you made it difficult for yourself. Beloved, the simple, basic, foundational elements of living the Christian life are set forth in this book. Turn with me now again to 1 Peter chapter 4. In these five verses, in these five verses are packed the basics of Christian living. In these five verses, you find the basics of Christian living. But before we begin to unpack this passage, I want to share one more thought with you. I believe that one of the characteristics of the Christian life, and this is important, one of the characteristics of the Christian life, one of the characteristics of the new nature that God has planted in you as a born-again being, one of the manifestations is a longing to be what God wants you to be. If you are truly born again, you understand what I'm saying. There has been planted in you a longing to be what God wants you to be. It's not something you generated. It's not something you thought up. It's something God has planted in you. It's an insatiable longing, insatiable desire to be what God wants you to be. You find that expressed by the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 7 when he says, I, I want to do what is good. I have this yearning, I have this passion, I have this desire to do what is right and good. Doesn't he say that? But that desire to do what is right, mark this, that desire to do what is right is not enough to bring about the fruition of what God would desire for you. Do you know that? To assume that is to be like a little child who decides he wants to be like somebody else. The classic example of all the kids who want to be like Michael Jordan. I want to be like Mike. Right? Remember? We ask our kids growing up. It's invariable. Parents say, now what do you think you want to be, Johnny? I want to be a fireman. Oh, that's great. 
Next day, what do you want? To, I want to be a policeman. Next day, what, I want to be a rocket scientist. I want to be a doctor. I want to be, and, and you know how it goes, right? So there's this one, we, we say, wannabes, wannabes, wannabes. And so we have this, we start with, with wanting to assume that, that that's going to be all there is to it, is to be like that little child who just wants to be. Wanting doesn't get it, though. Wanting doesn't get you there. Wanting is not enough. Somehow, that child who wants to be a doctor or an athlete or whatever, somehow that child has to be given, has to begin with the abilities and or at least the capabilities, certainly, and then pursue a life of preparation, right? Has to pursue a life of preparation. During that life, that child spends his time and energy building a foundation of habits. A foundation of what? Habits. Building a foundation of habits. Somebody write that down. Building a foundation of habits. A foundation of responses. A foundation of strengths, of timing, even of memory that will produce the performance of greatness that he wants. Wanting it is not enough. Even having the abilities, innate abilities and skills is not enough. It may be that the, the, the fruition of that is born in the wanting, but it does not come to fulfillment in the wanting. We all know that the ability to perform in the crucial moment, we all know that the ability to perform in that time of crisis when everything is on the line is not determined by a strong wish. That ability to come across with the goods when they're needed. That ability to perform in the heat of the battle and the moment when you need to be there. That ability comes only as a result of the depth of preparation. Is that not true? Is that not true? I submit to you there are many, many Christians, indeed many, most Christians today, who have the vision, as it were, because they can see the image of Christ in the Word of God, and they have the desire for spiritual excellence, but listen carefully, have not the daily discipline which is required to produce it. Daily discipline. How many times have we heard this? I was born for this moment. I've waited for this moment all my life. I've rehearsed it. I've practiced. I've worked hard. The moment has arrived. I'm ready. We understand that. But how many times when that moment has, been, has, has arrived, has come upon us, when we're ill-equipped, we're not ready, and we come apart at the seams, we implode, we have a meltdown, because we've not been prepared. I can't tell you how many men I talk to whose wives leave them, and these men are melting down. I was one. I understand. When my first wife left me years and years ago, I was unprepared. I didn't know what to do. I didn't know how to respond. And I see the same thing being played out again and again and again. That's just only one instance. The wishing will not allow you to meet the moment of crisis. It just is not going to do it. That's why many well-wishing Christians literally do come apart at the seams. They're not able to stand in the day of testing. Understand... Peter is writing to people who are being severely tested. And he's continuing to urge them, stand firm, stand firm. And he speaks to the same qualities of life. And we're going to study these qualities of life. He speaks to them again and again and again. But if I'm to stand firm in the face of crisis, in the heat of the moment... 
I've got to be prepared for it. I've got to be prepared for it. Parents, you've got to work with your kids. You've got to prepare your kids. You've got to teach them. We live in a society of spoiled, self-centered people, and they're raising a whole other generation of spoiled, self-centered people. And as these people get to the crisis, even Christians get close to the crisis. They want a shortcut, a quick solution, a quick course in spiritual strength. And all the more as they see that crisis approaching, now they're playing catch up. Oh, 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 it's too late. That thing's going to come on you and swallow you like a whatever. Beloved, the only way the yoke is easy and the burden is light. The only way the yoke is easy and the burden is light. The only way that you're ready for the crisis is when you have been prepared. When you have been prepared by the spiritual discipline of walking in obedience to the revealed principles of Christian living God has shown us in His Word. The only way. That's the only way. There are no shortcuts There are no quick fixes. Oh, fix me, fix me, fix me. Fix this thing, fix this thing. It's impossible to fix it. It's been years in happening. Beloved, in the day-to-day spiritual disciplines, in the day-to-day spiritual disciplines are built the strength and the courage, and the wisdom, and the boldness, and the depth that allows us and enables us to perform in those moments of crisis. It's in our day-to-day spiritual discipline. And many Christians seem very hard-pressed, very hard-pressed to learn that you can't have a life out of control and then when that crisis moment comes, grab hold of it and instantaneously live and re-set this thing in Christ-likeness. You just can't do it. It doesn't happen. No way. It is just that kind of shallow Christianity And Christianity today for many is shallow. We're distracted people. It's that same kind of shallow Christianity, beloved, that feeds the shallowness of our time. Do we live in a shallow world? Shallow society? People are just, people are empty suits. We see it from the highest places, don't we? They're empty suits. There's no character, no substance. You don't know who you can trust anymore. We are going more and more cynical. And that's feeding into the church. I just heard about a pastor recently, a pastor who, who divorced his wife because God said to do it because it wasn't working and he wasn't happy. And after the divorce, seven days later, he married another woman. Help me. Something's wrong. And he's not an isolated case. It's even in the church. Leadership in the church is shallow. Dallas Willard. Dallas Willard wrote a marvelous book. I want to commend it to you. The Spirit of the Disciplines. Write that down. The Spirit of the Disciplines. I want to quote from him a couple of paragraphs out of his book. This book really has marked my life and influenced me significantly. And I just want to read to you. He also teaches at USC, by the way. (laughs) He says, the -the on-the-spot episodes, the -the on-the-spot episodes, are not the place where we can, even by the grace of God, redirect unchristlike but ingrained tendencies of action toward sudden Christlikeness. 
Our efforts to take control at that moment will fail so uniformly and so ingloriously that the whole project of following Christ will appear ridiculous to the watching world. And we've seen that, have we not? The world laughs at the church. The world mocks the church. The world marginalizes the church. Why? Because the shallowness of the church. Because of the lack of depth and character and strength and power in the church. The church is not a force to be reckoned with. Somehow we have to be moved. We spoke last week about an incentive for holiness. Somehow we need to be moved out of our self-centered complacency. He goes on to say this. I found this fascinating. He says, some decades ago, there appeared a very successful Christian novel called In His Steps. Are you familiar with the book? A number of you have probably read it. In His Steps. The plot tells of a chain of tragic events that brings the minister of a prosperous church to realize how unchrist. Uh, unlike Christ's life, his own had become. The minister then leads his congregation in a vow not to do anything without first asking themselves the question, WWJD. You all have your bracelets and your t-shirts and your caps and all the paraphernalia. So he leads his congregation in in a vow. Not to make any choices, any decisions, unless they first say, what would Jesus do in this situation? As the content of the book makes clear, the author took this vow to be the same thing as intending to follow Jesus. To walk precisely in his steps. It is, of course, a novel. But even in real life, we could uh, count on significant changes in the lives of earnest Christians who took such a vow, just as it happens in the book. But, he says, there is a flaw in this thinking. Note this. The book is entirely focused upon trying to do what Jesus supposedly would do in response to specific choices. In the book, there's no suggestion, no hint, that he ever did anything but make right choices from moment to moment. And more interestingly, there's no suggestion that his power to choose rightly was rooted in the kind of overall life he had adopted in order to maintain his inner balance and his connection with his father. The book does not state that to follow in his steps is to adopt a total manner of life as he did. So the idea conveyed is an absolutely fatal one, that to follow him simply means to try to behave as he did when he was, quote, on the spot, unquote. When he was under pressure or in persecution or in the spotlight, there is no realization that what he did in such cases was in a large in essential measure, the natural outflow of the life he lived when not on the spot. What's he saying to us? He said, if you read that book, understand. Just because you read the book and just because you have the sentiment, I want to do what Jesus did when I'm confronted with situations. He could only do what he did because it was based on what? His life, a continual doing what he should do, which enabled him in those moments of crisis to do what he should do. Do you follow? Do you follow? Sometimes we just, we just think, oh, I'm going to do what Jesus do. I'm going to just think, what did Jesus do? In a cursory reading of the Gospels, okay, I think I know what Jesus would do. But I'm totally unprepared to actually do it. I just want to do it. I'm a wannabe. <laughs> I'm just a wannabe. Here it comes. The secret. The secret of being ready for the crisis. The secret for being ready for the crisis of having the yoke be easy and the burden be light is to learn, here it comes, here it comes, is to learn how to live the Christian life all the time. (laughs) There's the secret. All the time. I had a coach in high school, football coach, who told me, Nazarian, 
You're going to play the game like you practice. I thought, whoa, that's a novel thought. If I slough off in practice, guess what I'm going to do in the game? I'm going to slough off in the game. When, I, when it's on the line, when it really counts, i got to work hard in practice. i got to be prepared. i got to be prepared, be prepared. Somebody said, practice makes perfect. No, 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 no. Perfect practice makes perfect. You're going to play the game like you practice. If you're a sloppy Christian, if you're a shallow Christian, if you're not developing these disciplines moment by moment, day by day, then when it really counts, when it really comes down to the moment, when the crisis hits, when you've got to have all the stuff, you won't have it. God was there the whole time. He kept telling you, get ready, get ready. Am I making sense? All the time, all the time, so beloved, that we have developed the habits, we have developed the resources, we have developed the responses, the timing, the strengths, the memory, the faith, the spiritual courage to handle it. That's the issue. That's the issue. To behave like Jesus Christ is our goal. Would you agree? To be like Jesus is our destiny. Would you agree? But to be able to behave like Jesus Christ is not the result of wishing. It's not the result of just wanting. It's the result of daily spiritual discipline. What's it the result of? Daily spiritual discipline. Daily spiritual discipline. Listen to what Jesus said in Luke chapter 6, verse 40. A student is not above his teacher, but everyone who is fully trained will be like his teacher. You want to be like Jesus? Is that what you want? Then it requires that you be what? Fully trained. Fully trained. And to be fully trained, you've got to set aside your priorities. You've got to set aside your earthly goals. You've got to set aside the things that distract you. You've got to say, okay, Reporting for duty, sir. Here I am. I am going to bear down. I'm going to train. I'm going to learn. I'm going to study. I want to be faithful. So what Peter presents to us in our passage here, he gives us patterns, a summary statement of patterns for how we should live as believers In verses 7 through 11, there are three main points in this passage. Did we read this already? Let's read it together. It's the fourth time I've done this, so I can't remember what I did and what I didn't do. (laughs) Read with me from verse 7. The end of all things is near. Therefore, be clear-minded and self-controlled so that you can pray. Above all, love each other deeply because love covers over a multitude of sins. Offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. Each one should use whatever gift he has received to serve others. Faithfully administering God's grace in its various forms. If anyone speaks, he should do it as one speaking the very words of God. If anyone serves, he should do it with the strength God provides so that in all things God may be praised through Jesus Christ. To him be the glory and the power forever and ever. Amen. Amen. Three main points in this section. We, we studied the first one last week. If you weren't here last week, you want to get the tape from last week. It was very good. It was. We looked at point one last week. We looked at the incentive. The incentive. The end, the consummation of all things is near. People still struggle with that. We're not talking about eschatological categories. We're not talking about end-time things. We're not talking about pre-trib, mid-trib, post-trib, amillennial, pre-millennial, post-millennial. We're not talking about those things. We're talking about the consummation of all things is near. Living as if he is going to come back at any moment. Living as if he's going to come back at any moment. We studied that in depth last week. We looked at all the passages that spoke about living with a sense of imminency. Whether or not he actually comes back shortly is not the issue. 
We live in our life as if he were coming back at any moment. Understand the difference. Because when you commit yourself to living that way, there is incentive now because the consummation of all things is near. The fulfillment of all things. We're talking about the coming of Christ, the second coming of Jesus Christ. The incentive is for holy living. There is incentive there when you live in constant expectancy of the second coming of Jesus Christ. That was the first point. As I said, you can get the tape from last week and enjoy the entire study. Let's go on to point number two. We move from incentive to instructions. We have an incentive. We have an incentive. And now we need some instructions. What should I do? How should I live? I'm motivated. I'm motivated. He can come back any moment. I want to be found faithful. I don't want to be ashamed. I don't want to be embarrassed if he should suddenly show up and I'm just off here doing dumb stuff. So what are the instructions? The instructions for godly living, how to conduct your life on a day-to-day basis. How to conduct your life on a day-to-day basis so that you build the kind of habits that will stand you strong when a crisis comes. How to live the kind of life that though the cost of discipleship may be high, it will cause you to say, His yoke is easy and his burden is light. Now, there are three major patterns of life. Three major patterns of life. This is the patterns he's going to teach us. These are the instructions. And we're going to look into the first one this morning. Three major patterns of life that must be established. These are essential. The first one is personal holiness. Personal holiness. We're going to study this one this morning. Personal holiness. This has reference to our relationship to God. The second major pattern in life that must be established is love. This has reference to others. And the third is service. And more particularly for our purposes, responsibility to fulfill God's plans the responsibility to fulfill God's plans for us in terms of ministry within the body of Christ, Christian service. Now let's talk about personal holiness. Go back to verse 7. If I can rephrase that, I would put it this way. Therefore, therefore, because the end of all things is near, Because the end of all things is near. Be clear-minded and self-controlled so that you can pray. Now stay with me. Follow my thinking here. This is so, so essential. That verse really sums up holiness. It sums it up. It gives us a a summary understanding of what personal holiness is about and how to achieve it. Clear-minded, self-controlled, for the purpose of prayer would mean that my life is pure, my life is right, and it is so that my communion with a living, holy God is unhindered. That communion, prayer, is unhindered. I must be clear-minded, self-controlled. My life is in such a place that my communion with him is unhindered. Let's talk about this phrase, be clear-minded. It's one Greek word, but it's composed of two words that are joined together. Two Greek words. One means to save, and the other has reference to the mind. So literally, the word means to save your mind. Does that sound like a good thing to do? I want to save my mind. I want to keep my mind safe. I want to protect it. I want to keep it clear. Another way to put that would be to fix it on spiritual priorities, on holy things. The Apostle Paul echoes that in Colossians chapter 3, verse 2, when he says, set your mind on things above, not on earthly things. Set your mind on things above. It could also imply 
not to be swept away by emotion, not to be swept away by passion. Protect your mind. It's the same word, I found this interesting, same word used in Mark chapter 5, verse 15, uh, describing the previously demon-possessed man. We're told, Mark says, that he was dressed and in his right mind. He was clear-minded. He was thinking clearly now. Romans chapter 12, verse 3, the word is used there also. When the Apostle Paul says, think of yourself with sober judgment. So that same word is translated variously in the New Testament. The bottom line is we are to think soundly. We are to think soberly. We are to bring our mind, as it were, captive to the truth, divine truth. And everything, beloved, everything proceeds out of the mind, does it not? I mean, everything proceeds out of the mind. There's a variant reading on Proverbs that says this, As a man thinks, so he acts. How you think. How you think. Your perspectives. How you think is going to determine the course of your life. What you believe about yourself. What you believe you need. What you believe is true. What you believe is right. What you believe about the world. Everything you believe, all that you think, is going to determine how you live. So he says what? Be clear-minded. Guard your thoughts. Protect your mind. You follow? A clear mind, a sound mind, sound judgment is reflective of a holy orientation. We're talking about personal holiness, right? So a sound mind, a clear mind, sober judgment, is reflective of a holy orientation. My life is oriented in the right way towards holiness. The sinful, self-indulgent, deceiving, demonically influenced world in which we live is a very easy place to lose your spiritual mindedness. Would you agree? Very easy to lose your spiritual mindedness. This world can suck you dry, distract you. It's a great place to lose your mental and moral balance. It's said that every man has his price. I would hope that's not true of us. I would hope that we would not compromise. I would hope that we would not lose our moral compass, our moral balance and sensitivity. And so Peter says, to be spiritually sane, to be spiritually sane, think on spiritual things. Think on God. Think God's thoughts. Listen to what he told Joshua in chapter 1 of the book of Joshua, verse 8. He says, do not let the book of the law depart from your mouth, Meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do everything written in it. Now notice what he says next. Then, then you will be what? Prosperous and successful. It will go well with you. It will go well with you. Or to put it another way, your yoke will be easy and burden will be light. But it's all predicated on what? It's predicated on having clear thinking, a clear mind, a mind focused on what? The truth of God, the Bible, God's thoughts. Listen to Colossians or Philippians chapter 4. Finally, brothers, this is the Apostle Paul. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, what should you do? Think on these things, not the other things. Think, you only have so much capacity to think about anything at any given moment. Isn't that true? What should you focus your thinking on? That which will produce a what? A clear mind. Colossians chapter 3, verse 16. I love this. Let the word of Christ dwell in you, how? Richly. Not meagerly. <laughs> Not meagerly. Richly. I can't get enough. I can't read it enough. 
I want it to dwell in me richly. I want my life to be full of it. I want my mind to be full of the thoughts that God thinks. Titus chapter 2, verses 11 and 12. For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. The grace of God that brings salvation. That's what? That's the word of his truth. That's Christ. Teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. You see this continual call to live self-controlled, to live clear-mindedly, to have proper perspectives. Beloved, you must protect your mind. You must protect your mind. The battle is in the mind. That's where the battle is. The battle is in the mind. Bring it captive to Christ. Bring it captive to His Word. The great characteristic of clear-mindedness of a safe and sane mind is that it sees things in their proper perspective. It sees things in their proper proportions. It sees things in their proper priorities. This clear mind, if you will, sees what is important, sees what is not important. It is not swept away by sudden emotion or by changing fantasies and whims and the latest fads. You're not caught up in the latest this, that, and the other thing. Because why? You're so full of God's thoughts in His mind. You're clear-minded. You're not tossed about on a sea of indecision. Whoa, what should I do? I don't know what to do. I, whoa. You're clear-minded. You're not unbalanced. You're not an unbalanced fanatic flipping out in some spiritual hoodoo stuff. You're solid. You're solid. You're not distracted. You're, you're not indifferent. You're not foolish. Beloved, the only people who have the kind of clear-mindedness that we're talking about are those whose minds are focused on Him. You can't have it. You can't have it apart from Him. How many parents do we have? Parents, do you want your kids to grow up to be People who are poised and balanced, people who can handle life, people who are disciplined, controlled in their thinking. How many want your kids to grow up to be mess ups, <laughs> fools, embarrassments, wasting their life? How many of you want, you want your kids to grow up that way? No, that's, that's, a, that's an obviously stupid thought. We want the very best for our kids, do we not? Amen. The very best. I want my son to continue to grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord Jesus. I want him to be a poised man. He is already a poised young man. He's a disciplined young man. And I only have a few more years to continue to build into his life these things. But it all starts with a mind that is protected it all starts with a mind that is centered on what is right and true, on the Word of God. I want his life to be insulated from being victimized by temptation. I want his life to be protected. He's going to have enough problems in life, all of us do. But I want him to have the resources essential to live a life that's insulated from the ravages of temptation that can so easily destroy a person and that will lead him to continually growing in personal holiness. That's my vision. That's my goal. And when that becomes the pattern of our lives, when that becomes the pattern of our daily living, then when a moment of crisis arrives, when a moment hits, when it's all on the line, then there will be Christ-likeness. Then we will make a decision like Christ made it. Then and only then will we be able to stand firm. Beloved, again, the mind is the key. The mind is the key because the battle is there. And Peter goes on to say, not only be clear-minded, be self-controlled. The, the Greek word that's translated in my English translation, self-controlled, the literal translation of that word is to be sober. Not as opposed to drunk. Sober in the sense that you are vigilant, on the alert. 
May I submit to you, you will not be vigilant, you will not be on the alert unless you're first clear-minded. I got to be clear-minded. I got to be clear-thinking. I got to have some really clear understandings of what's true and right so that I know what to be on the alert against. Clear-mindedness, alertness leads, beloved, to right responses. Now I know what to do, and I know how to do it, because I've trained myself. This is absolutely indispensable to be clear-minded, to be self-controlled. This is absolutely indispensable to one very, very essential element of Christian living that is noted in verse 7. What is that essential element of Christian living that this is indispensable to? Prayer. Prayer. Get a hold of this. Get a hold of this. Being clear-minded, being self-controlled is for the purpose of prayer. It's for the purpose of prayer so that you can pray. You say, what do you mean? I can pray? No. No, you can't. Not like God means for you to pray. Most of us pray our what? Gimme prayers. And our little rote learned prayers and our habit prayers. Prayer isn't some formula. Would you like me to come and have a conversation with you and just talk to you in a formula? Just give you pat little answers? Just talk to you in little surfacey issues? Or would you like for us in the midst of our conversation to delve the depths of our lives, our hearts, feelings, desires, longings, passions, needs? That's what every wife wants, huh? <laughs> Being clear-minded, and I couldn't resist that, I'm sorry. <laughs> Being clear-minded and self-controlled are for the purpose of prayer. Why? Why? Listen to this. Note this. Write this down someplace. Because holiness, holiness flows out of direct communion with a holy God. If I'm not in direct, continual union with a holy God, guess what? I'm not going to be holy. I can talk about holiness all day long, but I'm not going to be holy. I'm going to be a legalist. I'm going to be keeping the rules. I'm going to do the dance. I'm going to make the pretenses. I'm going to act holy, but I'm not going to be holy. It's going to be all a fake without prayer. Without prayer. And beloved, when that communion, when that prayer is hindered by a cluttered, imbalanced mind, when that prayer, and, and, and prayer is, believe me, is the most essential element in Christian experience. It's the most significant Christian experience. And when your mind is hindered, then that prayer is lost. That prayer is lost. A confused mind, a self-centered mind, a mind knocked out of balance by worldly lusts and worldly pursuits, a mind victimized by emotion or passion out of control, a mind that is ignorant of God's truth, indifferent to God's purposes, is a mind that cannot know the fullness of holy communion with a holy God. You just can't do it. And if you just look in your own life and your own experience, I promise you, if you'll be intellectually honest with yourself, there are times more than you care to admit to, maybe, that you say, there's got to be more to prayer than what I'm experiencing. My prayer life is not what I want it to be. There's got to be something more. I just sense it. I know it. I feel it. I, why can't I seem to connect with God? Why is it that my prayers are so boring. <laughs> if they're boring to you, imagine what they are to God. <laughs> you see, your mind is important. Your mind is important because you bring your mind to prayer. Don't you? Yeah. And so your relationship to God, in a very real sense, which is expressed in this matter of prayer, is determined by the attitudes that you bring, beloved, which attitudes are the result of your thinking. 
And if you're to pray effectively, if you're to pray effectively, and if you're to commune with God deeply and spiritually, then you must think biblically and you must think spiritually. This is so basic to us. This is so basic. So many Christians today are dazzled by the world's fantasies. They are so swept up and so befuddled by all of the world's ideas that their thinking is out of whack. I can't tell you how many Christians I talk to who just are clueless about the truth. They are victimized by Satan's endless smoke screens. They're just sitting ducks. And as a result, their communion with God is hindered, it's warped, it's non-existent. I say, tell me about your prayer life. Talk to me about the richness of your prayer life. Talk to me about your prayer life. Can't do it. Because it's non-existent. They're so caught up in getting what they want. They're so caught up in getting their needs met. They're so caught up in all the stuff that the world says you must have that makes you important, significant, valuable, safe, and secure. That they forget, oh yeah, prayer. And maybe when they put their heads on their pillow, at the end of the day, they say, good night, God. As a result of having a confused, cluttered, distracted mind, beloved, their communion with God is hindered or lost, and with it the power of prayer and the powerful life. How many want to live a powerful life? A power-filled life. A life? A life that you can say truly, I can do everything because he strengthens me. A life that you truly say, though the cost is high, his yoke is easy and his burden is light because I'm moved by his power in my life. It comes directly, directly from an unhindered prayer life. Holiness. Prayer, that unending unending, living communion with God. Not some formal prayer. Unending, living communion with God. That's the heart of our life and the heart of our power. It is born out of thinking God's thoughts. Very simply. Very simply. The times of greatest communion with God for me are the times when I'm thinking most deeply the thoughts of God. It's simple. It's simple. The more I have the mind of Christ, the sweeter that communion is, beloved. The more often my thoughts are God's thoughts, the more frequently I am in fellowship with Him. So think God's thoughts. Think God's thoughts. What does that mean? Every day in the Word. 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 Meditating. Thinking. Drawing out. Absorbing. Every day. God's thoughts. When you read the Bible, it's not just a religious exercise. You read the Bible and you say, God, speak to my heart, speak to my life, speak to my mind. God, speak to me so that when I leave this place, leave this time, I walk out of here. I want to be thinking your thoughts all day. I want my mind controlled by your thoughts. How many times do we read the Bible? I talk to people, did you read the Bible? Say, yes. What did you read? What did I read? <laughs> Let me think now. I know I read it today, but what did I read? That's tragic. We ought to be able to, on the, on, the, on the money, say, 
I was in 1 Peter chapter 4. I've been reading verses 7 through 11 for a month, day after day, meditating on those verses, absorbing those verses, drawing out of those verses because I know that my pastor is going to teach us and I want to be there. I want to be there with him. I want to follow. I want to learn. I want to know that the Holy Spirit can teach me. And I want to carry that with me every day, all day, thinking God's thoughts, thinking God's thoughts, thinking God's thoughts. Beloved, you should be so you should be so deeply filled with scripture. Mark this. You should be so deeply filled with scripture that your involuntary responses are godly. That your involuntary responses are godly. So when someone pushes your button, you don't react. You respond. When someone curses you, you bless. You don't have to think about it. You're involuntary. And that only comes because you're what? You're so full of God's word. So full, your mind is clear and controlled by God's thought. This is not magic. This is not pretense. This is not psychobabble. This is the truth. God's word is powerful. It's alive. And it's effective. And when you're living that way, I promise you, I promise you, you will know the sweetness of communion with him. And I promise you, you will know the effectiveness of prayer. You'll see prayers. You'll see things happen. You'll see things change. And you'll know power in your life like you've never known it. Power for godly living. Power for holy living in the light of His coming. Power for holy living in a hostile world. You'll know it. You'll know it. And it won't be just other people. It'll be you. The end of all things is near. Therefore, be clear-minded and self-controlled so that you can pray. Amen. Lord, we love you today. We thank you for your word, Lord. Thank you for teaching us. Thank you, Holy Spirit, for speaking to us. Lord, I pray that these things would penetrate deeply into our life. Help us, O God, to honor you, to understand what a holy life is all about, to be clear-minded, self-controlled, O God. And Lord, let us live in the light of the imminency of the coming of Jesus Christ. Let us be so incentivized that we will... Live out your instructions day to day, prepared, prepared. We pray in Jesus' name. I'm amazed at the way you love me. I'm amazed at the way you bless me. I'm amazed at the way you touch my life. I'm amazed by the power of your word, freeing me from the bondage of this world, filling me 